Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swing, so without further ado, here he is. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We are continuing uh, in our series of 100 things. Uh, that we're, I think we're on thing 20, 100 things you should know about the Bible. Uh, but before we, uh, well, let's read, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So we learned about Samuel uh, several weeks ago. Samuel, we're standing on the threshold of a new era. Uh, Samuel was the last of the judges. But before we, we talk about this, I want to kind of take a step back and look at the big picture. Where, where do we stand in the grand Bible narrative? So we started, we started at the beginning of the creation story, and then the story of Israel really starts with the story of Abraham, the patriarchs. And that begins in the year 2000 B.C., so the patriarchs is a f- small family. God chooses them. He says, I'm going to make you into a holy nation. So you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and the youngest son goes to Egypt. His name is Joseph. So that whole period lasts uh, about a little over uh, almost 300 years, just, uh, just that family growing and living in the land of Canaan. Next, we have the, the phase where the Israelites lived in Egypt, and they started out in Egypt with Joseph being the second hand to the Pharaoh. He was like the prime minister of the land, and they they had a uh, they had a significant um, they had a lot of wealth. They had a, a significant place within the country. But over time, uh, they began to be a people that was despised by the Egyptians, and eventually they were turned into slaves. And they lived in Egypt for about four hundred years. And at the end of this 400-year period, they were crying out to God to rescue them. And he did. So in 1280, God raises up Moses, and Moses delivers the people of, of Israel from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, and they go into the desert. Because of their disobedience, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert instead of entering immediately into the Promised Land. And then after 40 years, they begin the, the time of conquest, which goes into the time of Judges. The judges, the judges period was an interesting period. There's a thing called the judges cycle. The people would come in, they would conquer, they'd do well, they'd be like, "Hey, we love our God, we, He's great," and then they'd kind of get complacent and they get kind of used to the way things are going. And after a while, they'd think, "You know, I really don't. Yeah, God's nice or whatever, but this is great. We love this place. Look what we did." And after a while, they would totally ignore God altogether. They would set up altars to other gods, and God would say, "That's fine if you want to do that." Uh, I'll cut myself off from you, and I'll let you, I'll let the other nations, you know, have do whatever they want. So the other nations would come in and take over Israel, and they would be oppressed by their neighboring nations. And then suddenly they'd be like, "Oh God, we need you again. Please forgive us. We're so sorry." And God, in His graciousness, would send a judge. This would be somebody of extraordinary strength, of extraordinary wisdom, or extraordinary power, or somebody that God just chose to move through. They maybe there was nothing extraordinary about them at all. And God would use this person, and they would lead them against the, their oppressors and rescue them. And then they would say, oh, God, you're great. This is awesome. 
And they would begin the whole cycle all over again. And this was a cycle that happened over and over in the judges' period. The thing that's interesting about this period is that it was about 200 years that Israel lived this way, where they had a series of judges that would come along and help rule them. But during, during the time of the judges, they never knew who the next judge would be. They never knew what tribe the judge was going to come from. They never knew how long the judge was going to lead or rule. And, um, and, then, if, and then they would suddenly disappear. And then they would, they, it was kind of this ambiguous thing. And, and it really made the people uncomfortable because it, mean that, it meant that they had to really trust God generation after generation after generation. And that was a very challenging thing to do. So now we come to the, area, the era of the last judge, Samuel. Samuel has a unique story. We heard about it two weeks ago, how he became um, a prophet of the Lord and how he was listening to, jo- listening to the Lord. Samuel's mother dedicated him to the temple because she couldn't have any, she was barren and she couldn't have any children. And when she had him, uh, he, was a, he was a special child. And it be, she made a deal with God, like, if, if I have this child, Lord, I will give him to you. And he spent his entire life in the service of God. And his two sons... His names for them were Joel and Abijah. Joel means Yahweh is God. And Abijah means Yahweh is Father. So even in the naming of his sons, he's acknowledging the power of God. He's acknowledging who God is. The unfortunate thing is that according to Scripture, his sons did not follow him. His sons did not follow his ways. Even though their names spoke of the goodness and the greatness of God, um, they did not walk in the ways of their father. Instead, they accepted bribes which perverted justice, which was a perversion of the very office that they were slated to possibly hold as judges. You cannot be a judge if you're easily bought or paid off because you will not make righteous decisions. Look down in verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah to appoint a king, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Sorry. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. So the elders, call, they call for an intervention. Have you ever watched the show Intervention, when the family, there's something wrong, and all the family members, they call the specialist, and the specialist comes in, and they sit down, the person who has a problem, and the whole family is sitting around them, and they, they intervene, and they say, okay, this is your problem, and we all have to tell you, we don't like to do this, but this, this is what has to happen. And that's kind of what happened here, except... For, for Samuel, it was all the other elders of the town, uh, elders of the time. The, it's, not, it's unclear whether Samuel knew whether his sons followed in his ways or not, but the elders knew, and the elders felt like, we have to bring this to Samuel's attention. He cannot appoint his sons to take his place because that will be bad for us. So they begin to plead their case to Samuel. They're like, point number one, you're old. I don't know what it is about elders, but they always like to pick on each other about their age. That even happens here at Harvest. There's, there's whoever's the oldest one, man, you can, you're in trouble. There's like some insecurity that comes with the name elder. Uh, obviously, they're saying to, to Samuel, obviously you cannot do this forever. You're, you're getting way up there, buddy. And uh, you're, you're going to kick the bucket soon, and we've got to start planning for the future. We've got to start thinking about what's going to happen after you're gone, because that's going to be soon. And then, then they said, point number two, your sons are not like you. you. You we trust. You are obedient to God. You have been faithful to God your entire life, but your sons just, just don't live up to the standard that you have set. So here's our conclusion. Appointed as a king, we want to be like the other nations. 
So they they took these two points that were legitimate points, and then they came up with their own conclusion, which kind of seems uh, just kind of random or out there. Here's the thing. The elders were looking for a permanent solution. They were looking for a magic bullet. They were looking for one, a, a one-stop shop. They wanted one thing, a one-size-fits-all answer to everything that was going on. You see, the, the whole nature, the whole deal of, of waiting for the next judge, that was a very messy business. Waiting and trusting on God, not knowing what tribe that person was going to come from, not knowing whether it be a man or a woman, oh, that's crazy. They, they, that was just too much to handle. And they said, we don't like the uncertainty of having to trust God with these major decisions um, through year after year, century after century. This seems to me to be a pattern of human nature. This isn't just something that's part of Israel's history. This is something that, that we as people, we tend to want a really clear, defined, clearly defined solution to any problems we have. Let me give you some examples. Uh, I was once part of a church that had this beautiful organ um, that they would use for worship. And I like, organ music's great, so I'm not, I'm not dogging the organ. But here's the issue. Here's what I think happened over time. At one point in time, somebody sat down and they took, a, they took an organ out of a bar, or maybe they were just in a bar, because that's what organs were, were. They were bar music. And they started playing it. And instead of playing a bar tune, they played a worship song. And all the people were amazed, and God's presence fell on that place. And the people were like, this is awesome. We feel God's presence as we worship to this music. And they were like, this is great. And so they took this organ, they put it in the church, and they made it bigger and shinier and louder. And then they, every week they'd get together, and they would say, when we play this organ, God shows up. After a time the people began to worship the instrument. The instrument itself became the focal point of the worship, and God left the building. It wasn't because God loves or doesn't love organ music. It's because God wants a heart that seeks after him. And when they first sang, they were seeking after him, and the organ music helped them. After a while, the organ itself became a stumbling block and, and separated the people from God because they were so focused on the organ that they were distracted from God. I find myself, when I think of poverty, wanting a solution that's easy and packaged. And so I have a policy that's set up that I know, like, this is, this is who I'll give to, this is how much, and this is how much time I'll give to them. I want a clear, concise, easy answer because people are messy, and I don't want to have to go through the hassle of getting to know them in their situation and what is best for them. Sometimes... We, we need to give people out of our resources. Sometimes that's not what the Spirit's calling us to do. But the work that it takes to decide what we need to do is too much, and we're often too lazy. I, and I'm speaking primarily of myself. I would prefer just to know, what's the answer? Every time I see somebody when I'm walking down the street, I just give them five bucks. I've done it. I've done my good duty, and now I'm done. Is that right? Is that, is that all I need to do? Oh, okay, 10 bucks. That'll be more generous. That's, that's the answer. That's what I have to do. When I see someone who's in, in, in trouble, that's what I do. What if that's not what they need? What if that's not what the Spirit is leading you to do? Do you see how our, our attempts to box in God actually uh, inhibit him from doing what he is wanting to do and calling us to do? 
In one of my Bible classes in college, we, we looked at Jesus' life. And uh, the professor, I remember him asking us, do you think, do you think Jesus was more about uh, confronting people with truth first or with love first? And half the class was like, oh, he was truthful. And they gave examples. And half the class was like, no, 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 he was really loving. And they gave examples. And he had us go through Scripture. And what, what came out very clearly as we studied is that Jesus met each person where they were. And depending on who the person was and their circumstances and how the Spirit led him, sometimes he would come out swinging, not literally, but, well, except for in the temple when he knocked over the tables. Sometimes he would come out very, very harsh and almost like you're, you're thinking, wow, that's really strong. And sometimes he would come out very gentle and very loving. And if you just read it, you're, you're kind of confused saying, well, I don't understand. What's, what's the answer? But the answer for Jesus was that he took each person as they were, and he was, he was sensitive to the Spirit in every situation. I recently, uh, well, a couple of years ago, I was talking with some church people over a meal, um, just some Christian churched people, and we were talking about this very issue about how, um, you know, how we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And, and um, the, the guy across the table from me, he leaned over and he said, you know, he's like, that's really nice. He said, but really... At the end of the week, after a full week's work, I'm just really tired, and I don't want to have to make any decisions. I would rather the pastor just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And I was like, what? You want the pastor to tell you what to do, or you want the pastor to to decide or make all the answers? I was like, wow. But the pastor may be with you an hour a week, if that. What about the other seven days and 23 hours? You just check out. You don't want to have to decide. It's too much work. This is, this is the nature of the Israelites as they came to Samuel. They were saying, look, we don't like the old way of doing things. The old way is too hard. It's too much work. It's too ambiguous. And we, we just don't trust it anymore. We want a permanent solution. So in verse 6, but when they said, Give us a king, lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have, gone, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until, until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel is an amazing man. He was initially displeased with the with even the the, the thought of what they were saying. Even, the, even he in his spirit he immediately was like, "Oh my gosh, what are they thinking?" But he didn't respond out of his initial response. Instead, he went and sought the Lord. I think that's something very powerful. They want a response that's simple and easy that will well, box got in, and Samuel says, "You know, I'm displeased with this, but I I don't know. I'm not I'm not worthy to just speak on behalf of God. I got to go talk to him. I got to spend some time seeking his face and finding out what it is God really wants in this situation." So imagine you're Samuel. You've spent your whole life dedicated to God. You spent your whole life executing this office of judge, executing it well, being faithful, not taking bribes, not taking anything extra. And as you're about to retire, or as you're getting up in your, your years, 
the leadership of the country comes to you and they say, hey man, we want to phase out your position. We don't really think you're needed anymore. We have a new idea. We're going to replace you with, with somebody else. This reminds me of a movie I saw a couple years ago. It's called uh, About Schmidt. It's not the greatest movie ever, but uh, the beginning of this movie really captured my attention. It's uh, Jack Nicholson. He's sitting in this very plain, bare office. And at first you don't know what's happening. He's just sitting there and he's staring up at the clock. And you watch the clock hand go around for the whole last minute. And it's, it's one minute before five o'clock. And as soon as the hand clicks to five, he gets up, he shuffles, he picks up his briefcase, he pushes in his desk chair and he walks out. And then you find out that was his very last day of work. It's his very last day of a long career. I forget how many years he worked in, the, in, the, uh, in this office, but he spent his entire career working for the same company. And he walks out, and they're like, hey, man, have a great retirement. See you later. And uh, he's like, well, on his way out, he says, hey, I just want you to know, in my office, there are files that I've kept the entire 30 years I've worked here, or however many years he worked. He said, all my files for my entire life are in that room. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll make sure we, you know, we file them away and keep, keep good care of them. And he goes out, and he goes to this really sad, um, uh, horribly awkward uh, retirement party. And then the next day, he gets up, and he doesn't know what to do. And so he decides to walk by the office because he's, he, he doesn't have any other. He, he's just, he spent his whole life go, getting up and going to the office, so now he doesn't know what to do with his life. And he walks by the office, and he sees down this alleyway on the outside, he sees all of his files just thrown by the trash, and papers are blowing everywhere. His whole life's work everything that he had spent himself for dutifully even up until the very last minute was just thrown out with the garbage. That reminds me of how Samuel must have felt at this stage in his life when the elders come to him and said, you know, you've done a great job, but really we're, we're done with you and your, in your office. We're, we're going to make that obsolete. <clears throat> even in that pain, and even in that that um, in the moment of feeling kind of depressed about all, all the ways that he was being treated, Samuel said, Samuel went back to God and prayed. And the first thing that God does to Samuel is he consoles him. He says, Samuel, I know this may feel bad to you, but really, ultimately, the people are not rejecting you. The people are rejecting me. I am their king, and they're saying that that's not good enough, and they want another king. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to them, which translated could also mean, I want you to do what, they, what they're asking. But, warn them first. So the second thing, the first thing that the, the elders and the Israelites wanted, they wanted a permanent solution. They wanted one answer so they wouldn't have to think about it or decide anymore. And the second thing that they wanted was to be like all the other nations. Most of the nations at this time felt like they treated their gods, or they treated their kings as gods, or the kings considered themselves as gods. So this was no small, trivial thing when they said they wanted a king to be like the other nations. They were saying, we want someone to replace God because we can't see him. We don't really always know that he's there. We don't really trust that he's there. So we want someone we can see, someone who's tangible, someone we can serve. So God's response, God's response was a warning. He said this, in his warning, in his telling them about the king, there was not a single positive thing he told them about having a, a human king. 
everything he told them was in a negative light. He said, they will con- this king will conscript your sons and daughters to his service. He will take the best of everything you have, the best of your servants, the best of your fields, the best of the fruit of your fields, the best of your livestock. The king is going to get the best, and then you get whatever else is left. And finally, he said, you will cry out for relief. You're going to say, these are too many taxes. He's taxing us too much. We don't like it. And God said, I won't listen because you're rejecting me right now. So there was a big warning, a big, huge list of warnings to remind them of what was going on. You know, people are kind of weird. We, uh, we, we have this desire to serve and worship something, um, but we often we point it in the wrong directions. Here God was saying, look, I've rescued you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have, you have lived in freedom for over 200 years. Yes, it's not easy knowing who the judges are, but you are free men. You do as you please. Your land is your own. When somebody comes against you, the judge will lead you and you rise up against them. But then you go back to your homes, back to your fields. You're not paying taxes or tribute to some grand leader. You are a free people. And the people said, yeah, but we really want to serve somebody. We want to be enslaved by someone. Imagine how weird that would sound to God who had rescued them from slavery. God brought them out of slavery, out of working under the man, working under the, pers- the, the Egyptians, the people that were oppressing them, brought them to freedom, to a place where they were their own people. And now they're saying, yeah, we really like you know, serving somebody else, where they make all the hard choices and we can just kind of follow them. That's strange. This happened to Gideon. The people, after he led them to victory, the people said, oh, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And Gideon said to them, You have no king but Yahweh. He rejected their nomination to be crowned as king. It's easy for us in the United States to say, wow, that's that's crazy. Those those Israelites were kind of weird people. But even, do you know in the United States, right after the Revolutionary War, uh, George Washington had just led uh, the United States to victory. And Colonel Louis Nicola, a Frenchman who had served under Washington, he had a great deal of influence with the officers in the Continental Army. And he mentioned one day the idea of Washington being king. And this is how Washington responded to him. He said, Let me conjure you then, if you have any regard for your country, concern for yourself or for posterity, or respect for me, banish these thoughts from your mind and never communicate, as from yourself or anyone else, a sentiment of like nature. They were literally... Just They had just gotten out from under the reign of King George of England, and already the thought of being a, having a new King George in the United States was, was floated across the front of Washington. Washington was like, no, are you crazy? We spent, we spent years and tears and blood you know, fighting this, uh, the idea and the notion of this thing. We're not going to turn right around and go right back to it immediately. And yet, Israel seemed to have forgot their history. So God's second response is a very gracious response. He listens. Even though he says it's a bad idea, he's like, that's not a great idea. I don't think it's going to be wise. He says, you know what, though? I'm, I'm going to work with you. I, if you want to have a king, that's fine. We can have a king. And I don't think it was a vindictive, oh, you can have a king then. Ha, ha, ha. You'll learn your story. I think it was like, 
I think he probably was like, it was a sigh. Like, man, I wish they got it. They don't get it. But let's work with them where they are. They want a king. Let's give them a king. So Saul enters the picture. Saul is a man who has great credentials. And it's interesting, his name, Saul is, Saul's name means that which has been asked for. And the people were asking for a king. Saul's name was that which had been asked for. Saul had great c- credentials. He came from a wealthy father, a man who was the, the similar, he'd be somewhat like a noble if there was a noble at that time. He, he came from wealth, he came from power, he came from prestige, but he came from one of the smallest tribes. This was probably a good thing since he, since a small tribe, it wasn't going to divide the country. That he was like one of the smaller tribes would be one of the weaker tribes. So they would say, "Well, that's probably a good, it's a good place for a king to come from because he can't pull too much of the country against him. They, they, he has to generate support from all the other tribes." And of all the things he had to be a good thing, the one thing that was mentioned multiple times was that whenever someone saw them, they would go, "Whoa, he looks like a king." He had the appearance of a king. It's funny. He first met Samuel because he was on a mission to rescue his father's donkeys. He went on this, these donkeys, donkeys which are known to be stubborn and hard to deal with, were missing. They went off on their own. And he was sent out to find them and bring them back to his father's flock. So that's his assignment. Find these straying, stubborn donkeys and bring them home. While he's out... He is anointed by, by Samuel as king. He's not crowned yet, but he's anointed. So it's almost as if God's taking that initial mission and saying, this is a good illustration for us to think about. I need someone to go out and bring these stubborn people back home to where they belong. After he's anointed, a week goes by, and then Samuel and the people come together, and this is what happens. This is uh, chapter 10, verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of God to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you of all your calamities, distresses. And you have said, No, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before, before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. So God recounts the ways that he's blessed them. Look, look back over our history. Remember what I've done. I've, I've done nothing but good things for you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've delivered you from slavery. And, th- and now you've rejected me as king. But, but remember, this is where I brought you from, and this is what you're asking right now. So when Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Uh, at this time, uh, casting, dots was one, casting lots was one of the, one of the ways that um, the leaders of Israel would try to decipher what God was doing. It'd be similar to tossing dice. You say, okay, we're going to ask God a question. Who's going to be the next leader of the elder board? And if it's a seven, then it's, it's this family. If it's six, it's this family. If it's five, it's this family. Four, it's, boom. Oh, it's a seven. Okay, it's this family. Now, which person is it going to be? And you keep casting dots, and you, you say, you define the parameters, and you just say, we're going to trust God to show us the answer, and you, you cast the lots. 
Uh, it's kind of a weird thing, a strange thing for us to think of. It's easily manipulated. Um, people can say God says things he doesn't necessarily say. But uh, it's also is one of the ways that was used up until Acts. The last time this was used in the Bible was right before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And I think that was significant because before that time, you had to decipher somewhere, some way what God was saying as a people. But now we have a new way to do that. So we don't longer need to cast lots. So they cast these lots. They, are, they narrow it down. It goes from tribe to family to all the way down to one person. And it was Saul. The Spirit led them through, through the casting lots to Saul. And then they can't find him. They don't know where he is. He's hiding. The text doesn't explain clearly why he was hiding, but doesn't that seem strange that somebody who's about to be crowned king is, being, is hiding in timidity and, and among the baggage? They ran and brought him out, and he stood among the people and was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. So they brought this guy out who was hiding in the baggage. Everyone looks at him and was like, Oh man, that guy looks like a king. Look at him. He's, he's tall. You've got to be tall to be a good king, and he's tall. I bet he's going to be a good king. That's crazy. We do the same thing. But Samuel, so Samuel goes on to explain the regulations of the king. These were um, given in Deuteronomy 17. Moses wrote down, God, God knew at one point in history, God knew that his, the people of Israel were going to call for a king. And God told Moses, when that day happens, here are some regulations I want you to write down. These are, these are three things that are most important to me. When you do have a king, these are, what the, these are the regulations that the king should obey. They come into th- in three major uh, categories. The first one is weapons. The king is not supposed to, to uh, collect for himself a large standing army, especially with horses and chariots. And you may think, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because... If they have horses and chariots, then they'll be safe if they're attacked. But if they don't have a lot of horses and chariots, then who's going to protect them? And that's the whole point. God did not want them to rely on the horses and chariots for protection. God wanted them to rely on him. Not to mention the expense that 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 would be to their nation. But I don't think God was primarily concerned with the expenses. I think he was primarily concerned with the heart. Do you know that the United States of America, of all the world expenditure on military everything, the United States spends 48% of what the world spends on military products and personnel? So 48% of what is spent in the world on the military is the United States of America, and 52% is all other nations combined. I'm not saying that about America, but where do you find yourself trusting when you travel internationally? When you travel with a U.S. passport, do you find yourself trusting in that passport or the fact that you have this powerful, wealthy nation behind you that will stand behind you should you get into some kind of trouble? Or do you say, wow, you know, uh, my trust and my faith is in, in Christ alone? It's really easy to trust in the, the resources that the land around us has, that the, the people around us have. But we have, to be gen- we have to be careful that we're not misplacing our trust 
The second regulation for uh, kings was a caution not to collect too many wives. The, the reason for this was there was multi was multifaceted. The first thing, in this time, people would have wives, kings would have wives for political reasons, uh, um, probably among other. But political reasons were if you marry the princess, uh, if you marry the king's princess, the king's daughter of Egypt, she comes to live in your house, then you, you more or less create a treaty with them. If they attack your country, you say, dude, I have your daughter in my house. It's not very wise to attack us. And the king's like, yeah, I love my daughter, so I won't attack you. So marrying was a form of treaty because it protected your land against the other nations because it would say, you would say to them, look, it's more or less kind of like a form of hostage taking where you, between the different countries where they would send their nobility out and they say, oh, we well, can't attack that place because, you know, the princess lives there and then, you know, her, the grandchildren of the king, stuff like that. So, so it became a political, a political ploy. And God also said, I do not want your hearts to be um, distracted from me. I, I don't want your hearts being drawn away from me. And the other thing that would happen as they would intermarry across multi, multi-culturals, multi-countries, is the foreign, the foreign princesses would bring in their own gods and set up their own altars in the land. That would be part of the stipulations of the treaty. And what would happen is, over time, it would be really hard for the king to not have to at some point through a political ceremony or to, to visit the different shrines and temples and religious ceremonies and his, his heart would be distracted from God because in order to keep peace with his new wife and the other countries around him he would have to follow their gods as well and God was a jealous God and he didn't want that to happen because he said you will, your heart will stray from me and the third regulation was to not collect obscene amounts of wealth and this, I mean, this echoes the first two. Do not collect for yourself so much wealth that your heart becomes, that your heart begins to trust in what you have instead of who I am. And uh, Jesus echoes this when he says it's easier for a rich man, rich man to enter through an eye of a needle, than enter heaven than a rich man to enter through an eye of a, needle, a camel. Blech. Jesus said, it's easier for a rich man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. So our wealth is, is such a distraction to us that it inhibits us from fully giving ourselves to and trusting God. So it is, a, it is a regulation for the kings to not gain for themselves too much wealth. Samuel pronounces these regulations to the people to the king in front of the people. And the people stand up and they shout in one voice, Long live the king! It's kind of a bittersweet moment when you look back at it. They were warned it's not a great idea. The king was given regulations which show that the inclination of the heart of man is not towards Christ, but towards power, towards money, towards the things of this world. And at the end of all these warnings and regulations, the people stand up and in one voice they shout, praise God, we, we thank you for this king. We love this new king because he's tall and he's handsome. Long live, the, long live the king is still used today in monarchies. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's a phrase, when one monarch dies, um, immediately it will be pr- pronounced, the, uh, the king is dead, and in the same breath, long live the king. There, there is a natural transition of power, and it's a very quick 
thing. At, at the very moment of pronouncement of death, there's a pronouncement of who the new king is. So there is no turmoil. There is no, uh, there's no, no, no attempt at coup of power. There's an immediate direct descent of, from one king to the next um, so that no one is confused. Also, long live the king is, a, is, a, is the voice of people saying, we are looking to the future, we are trusting this king, we want this king to provide for us a bright future, a hopeful future. We are looking for our security in the future. As the uh, Israelites said, long live the king, they are looking forward to a new chapter in the life of Israel, a chapter where kings rule, and they know that now there's something established where it won't be ambiguous who the next leader is going to be. There's something set into place. In the midst of their impure motives, in the midst of their rejection of God, God has a plan. God has a plan to redeem the kingdom. God has a plan for, his, for a king that will one day rule, that will rule the way that God wants him to rule, a king that will rule justly and rightly, a king who isn't concerned about wealth and weapons and wives, but a king who is concerned about the least of these and making sure that, that people love and obey God and follow him with all their hearts. When that happens, people will say, long live the king, and he will. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for the story of Saul. We thank you for the ways that we can see ourselves in the lives of the Israelites. How easy it is to be distracted by the things of this world or want easy, simple solutions, one size fits all. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for the ways that we continue to reject you as king in our hearts. Lord, we pray that, we will, uh, that you will continue to be patient with us as you were with them. Lord, we pray that you will guide us. Father, if we haven't made you the ruler of our lives and of our hearts, then we come before you this morning and we just ask you to, to take the throne in our own hearts. We all are worshiping something. And Lord, I pray that it is you. Father, I just pray that as we go through our week, that you give us the endurance, that you will help us to be sensitive to your spirit and your nudgings daily. Help us to not approach situations as one size fits all, but let us, let us hear your voice and how you would respond in each individual situation that we're in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swing, so without further ado, here he is.